me, please, in your Bibles to our scripture reading, our sermon text, which is Luke chapter 24, verses 50 to 53, the last four verses in Luke. This is the Word of God. It contains no errors in the original language in which it was given. Languages, I should say, uh, and it remains to us the authoritative word of God in faithful translations like the one from which I am reading. So listen to God as he speaks to you, starting in verse 50, Luke 24. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And it came about that while he was blessing them, He parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising God. Amen. Pray with me again, please. Oh Lord, we do thank you for this time that we have to hear from you, Lord Jesus, the great prophet of the church. Uh, Lord, uh, the mystery of preaching is uh, indeed a great mystery. Uh, I am a mere uh, sinful man, and yet, Lord, uh, in the office that uh, you have uh, given to me, that uh, you say in your word that you speak through uh, the, uh, the minister as he preaches, that uh, to the degree that... Uh, The text is rightly understood and unpacked. You are the one who is doing the speaking. Would you please speak to us, Lord, uh, from this text? Would you please use it to cause us to love you more, to be more committed to serving you uh, and putting off sin and putting on righteousness? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Children, um... Have you ever had some something happen, an event, a uh, an occurrence uh, around you uh, that happened whose impact on you wasn't immediately obvious to you? Um, I'll give you an ex- just an example of something uh, that might be uh, something like what might happen have happened to you. Say you've um, your mom comes in the house and says, "My car won't start." And you hear her say that her car, car won't start, and perhaps your first thought is after she says that, so what? It doesn't affect me. Her car won't start. And you proceed to go on uh, doing whatever it is you were doing. But then later on, as the day goes on, you realize the fact that your mom's car is broken and won't go anywhere is going to prevent you from going to some place where you want to go, where she was going to take you but can't anymore. Maybe to the ice cream shop or something, or to a friend's house or something like that. That would be an example of an event or something happening that at first, when you hear about it, it doesn't really, you don't think too much of it. Uh, but then you later on realize that, wait, that's really actually important. Well, there are some events in Scripture that are like this, that 
whose impact on us is not immediately apparent, or whose importance to us is not immediately apparent or obvious. And the ascension of Jesus, the bodily ascension of Jesus, 40 days after he was raised from the dead, I think is one of those events. The ascension is often overlooked as an aspect of Jesus' atoning work, and yet it is it is the... Uh, uh, crowning element of Jesus' atoning work. Uh, it, it, it's, it's a part and parcel of the redemptive, saving work that Jesus accomplished uh, through his perfect life, through his obedient death, through his burial, through his resurrection, and, and then his ascension into glory. And those are all a part, a parcel, of one redemptive um, work of our uh, mediator and our savior. And the ascension is seldom preached on, my understanding. Well, I'm going to preach on it. Because especially with respect to the resurrection, which we're, many of us are thinking about on this day, those two events of Jesus' life are particularly closely tied together. The ascension and the resurrection. I'll explain that as we go on here in a little bit. A little background before we get into the, uh, the two points of uh, the sermon. Um, the most important and most significant event in all of human history is drawing to a close at this point uh, in Luke's gospel, at the end of his gospel. What is that event? I'm talking, of course, about the earthly life and presence of uh, the God-man, uh, Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior of uh, God's people. And his time on earth is, is just about to be over. Permanently, until he returns, that is. God the Son, that is who Jesus of Nazareth was, God the Son, and, uh, incarnate, enfleshed. Uh, he had, uh, uh, 33 some odd years earlier, had voluntarily veiled his divine glory when he took to himself uh, a true body and a reasonable soul in the womb of the Virgin Mary. He, upon being born, lived a life of perfect obedience to his Father's will on our behalf, all those who put our trust in him. Jesus then endured all the miseries of this life, the wrath of God and the cursed death of the cross, as we learn from the shorter catechism question to that effect. And he was buried and continued under the power of death for a time, namely uh, a portion of three days. And so he had accomplished the, the work of atoning for the sins of his people, that is, with just the final element of that uh, atoning work yet to be rendered. He had conquered death in his resurrection. He had conquered the powers of hell, which have a claim on all sinners. Uh, he had risen from the dead in a glorified um, heavenly body, and it appeared to his followers uh, on numerous occasions over the course of 40 days prior to this point in time that we're reading about here. And by appearing to his followers, uh, the disciples, over that 40-day period, he had forever banished from their hearts all doubt as to the reality of his bodily resurrection from the dead. He was alive. And he wasn't just alive as a spirit. He was alive in body. They watched him eat fish. They put uh, uh, Thomas put his finger into his side, um, and uh, 
They were with him and were able to touch him and see that he was there bodily. Uh, And so they knew this. Jesus had also taught the disciples everything uh, which they needed uh, that was necessary for the building up of his church over the, uh, over the subsequent period until he would return again, including the proper way to understand uh, the Old Testament scriptures. And then Jesus had instructed them to go to Jerusalem uh, from where they were to wait for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which was uh, yet future from this point in time, and where also they would commence the undertaking of the evangelization of the world from Jerusalem and points outward from there. The work that the Father had given to the Son had been fully accomplished, save the final uh, element of that work, which we are going to look at now. All that remained was for him to assume his rightful place of glory and honor in the highest of heavens as the messianic king, which is what the ascension of Christ is. It's the ascension to his throne, to his place of indescribable honor. Two things we're going to look at in the uh, next few minutes together from this text. First of all, we're going to look at the circumstances surrounding the ascension of Christ. Um, and then secondly, we're going to dwell on, uh, the, in the latter part of the sermon, the importance of the ascension of Christ. So the circumstances surrounding the ascension, and then the importance of the ascension. First of all, um, the setting. Uh, this is... Forty days after his resurrection, he was raised from the dead, which we, uh, which on Resurrection Sunday, uh, which again is every Sunday, but particularly this one for many of us, um, he was raised on that day, and this is forty years, forty days rather after that point in time, uh, after the tomb had been uh, stone had been rolled away and Jesus had walked out. He has uh, come with his followers at this point in time to a place on the Mount of Olives, uh, on the outskirts of Bethany. Uh, we learn from Acts that he's in the Mount of Olives, but here in this text, in verse 50, it says they went out, they, uh, he led them out as far as Bethany. Well, that isn't a conflict, because um, Bethany is, or the Mount, of, the Mount of Olives separates Jerusalem from Bethany. Bethany is on one side of the Mount of Olives at its base to the east, and Jerusalem is on the other side of the Mount of Olives to its west. And the Mount of Olives is there in the middle. And so you can be on one slope of the Mount of Olives and essentially be in Bethany, or on the outskirts of Bethany, or you can be on the other slope and be in the outskirts of Jerusalem. There's about two-mile distance between the two uh, cities. Uh, and so they are near Bethany on the uh, slopes of the Mount of Olives. Uh, and Jesus has just given them some parting words, which we read of in Acts chapter 1. We won't uh, look at that now. But he has spoken to them, and now it has come time for him to depart uh, from this world, from this earth, until he shall return again in glory one day. And as he is about to depart, Jesus pronounces a blessing on his disciples, over his disciples. We read this in verse 50. Jesus, like the high priests of the Old Testament era, as they came out of the temple, after ministering to the temple on the great feast days, when they would come out of the temple, they would lift up their hands uh, and they would bless the people. And Jesus blesses the disciples in a similar manner, uh, imitating, uh, I should say, not imitating, the high priests were really imitating Jesus, not vice versa. Uh, But uh, like the high priests, 
And so Jesus does this blessing upon the disciples as the great and as the uh, final high priest, the eternal high priest uh, that uh, the writer of the Hebrews speaks so eloquently about, uh, whose office as high priest of the Old Testament only typified, uh, the Old Testament high priests only typified Jesus. Jesus was the true high priest. They were mere shadows of Jesus, pointing forward in time to, to Jesus, just like David's uh, kingship did, just like Moses' uh, uh, prophetic office did. Jesus is the great prophet, the great priest, and the great king of the church. And so Jesus, as the great high priest of his people, lifts up his hands and as a sign to the disciples as they're watching him that the blessing that he intends to pour out upon them, actually is bestowed by him. The the hands are a signal that the blessing is actually coming upon those uh, who uh, are under the raised hands, if you will. And so Jesus raises his hands and blesses them in this way. Uh, and by the way, there's a application to us here today. Uh, uplifted The uplifted hands of an ordained minister of the gospel during a benediction is a sign, similarly, of the impartation of blessing, which is why I do that and why we, ha- why we do that at the end of our service. Uh, the minister acting in Christ's stead is pronouncing a blessing on God's people. Uh, and the, the hands raised uh, points to that uh, promise that that blessing will come to you, but it doesn't come automatically to everyone who is under the raised hands, if you will. It only comes um, like the uh, like the word preached and like the sacraments, the Lord's Supper and baptism. The blessings that are uh, that are portrayed in those uh, means of grace only is imparted by God to the person who actually has faith in his heart in Christ. But for the person who is resting in Christ, the raised hands uh, guarantee, if you will, the blessing uh, upon that individual because he is in Christ and finds favor from his Lord um, and that blessing is given. So Jesus blesses his men. Um, Jesus also then visibly ascends from the earth where he was standing, the portion of earth he was standing on, up into heaven. We read of that in verse uh, 51. It came about that while he was blessing them, uh, he parted from them uh, and was carried up into heaven. So with outstretched arms, uh, as his disciples are looking to him with a worshipful hearts, he leaves the earth, departs into the cloud, if you will, of the divine presence, which... Uh, which uh, takes receives him. Now, let me say this. As the second person of the Godhead, God the Son, Jesus was never separated from his Father. The wrath of, G- of the Father, indeed, was poured out upon the Son. But there was never a pulling apart of the divine trinity, uh, which is impossible, of course. You can't pull God apart. Um, but... So there was never a separation of the Father and the Son, and there, nor was there a giving up of the divine glory that was always his. He always had glory, even though that glory, we know, was veiled during virtually all of his time upon the earth. There were brief moments, the transfigure, Mount of Transfiguration, perhaps in the temple when he was clearing it, when the glory of uh, his divine glory became evident and became visible. But prior, most of the time it was veiled by his body and by the Lord's will 
uh, himself. But now, at this point in time, as the God-man and the glorified God-man, he now enters into heaven as he is ascending up and departing the earth, and he is bringing with him, God the Son is, bringing with him his human body. A glorified body, but nonetheless a human body. That's why he is the God-man. He still is man. He's still fully man and fully God. And he's glorified in both his humanity and obviously in his divinity as well. His human nature has passed, if you will, into the fullness of heavenly glory. And his human nature is now in heaven, perfectly adapted to the life of heaven, as, by the way, will be your body and mine if we are believers when we leave this earth. Our bodies, um, well, actually I should say when Jesus comes back to get us, and to, uh, to resurrect our bodies if, uh, if he hasn't returned first. But at that point in time, our bodies will be given back to us when the dead are raised uh, on the final day when Jesus returns, uh, and our bodies will be uh, fit for heaven. Heaven and earth will be one, uh, and we will, uh, we will be reunited with our, bo- uh, with our souls, and we will have uh, the life that Jesus has, if you will, uh, minus the div- the divinity, uh, but uh, in his uh, glorified body, ours will be like unto his. Well, and then the disciples respond after seeing Jesus ascending up into heaven. We read of their response in verse uh, fifty-two and three, and they uh, worshipped him. Some texts uh, do not; have, some uh, versions of the Bible do not have this. I think it it was there. It, it, it's clear to me when looking at the uh, Greek that it was there in the original text. Uh, even though the New American Standard doesn't include it, uh, and they worshipped him, and, wor- and they worshipped him, and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and were continually in the temple, praising God. They're filled with joy. They realize uh, all the discouragement, all the horrors that uh, were filled their hearts after Jesus took his last breath on the cross were all utterly dissipated forevermore. Uh, they knew that it was all true. He was, in fact, the God-man. He had indeed purchased their salvation. He was coming again. He was going to conquer the world with the gospel. And they knew it. And so they praise God for the mighty work of redemption. And they worship the Son. Only God can be worshipped. Otherwise, it's idolatry. And they worshipped the Son as he departed from them. And they praised God for blessing them, for giving them uh, the great privilege of uh, being witnesses of Jesus' uh, resurrection and now ascension into heaven, and of course of being his um, apostles to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so these are the circumstances surrounding the ascension of Christ. But now let's look at, secondly, the importance. Why is this important, this event? Well, first of all, uh, it's important... Uh, because it's a visible manifestation of Jesus' divine sonship. Jesus was and still is and always has been uh, God. And 
the ascension into heaven and the reception uh, of Jesus, uh, of the uh, of the clouds of Jesus, if you will, the divine uh, presence, uh, receiving him up, that physical um, event that they witnessed, the disciples witnessed, was the final proof that he really was God enfleshed. Now, they had many proofs prior to this point in time, of course, but this was the final proof that he was, in fact, the divine messianic king. It was also the final proof that he, as the almighty God, was fully able to fulfill all his promises, that he had already fulfilled many of them, and others that had yet to be fulfilled would be fulfilled, including, of course, that he's coming again in glory. Uh, and that the, the world would be transformed by uh, the gospel message and other similar um, uh, promises that were made. And they knew this. Secondly, another asp- uh, thing that uh, why the uh, ascension is so important is it completed the process of the sons, the divine sons' exaltation. This was a process that you, uh, you recall if you uh, if you uh, looked at the uh, read the shorter catechism uh, talks about the humiliation of Christ. Um, and uh, that the humiliation of Christ consisted in his being born and that in a low condition being made under the law, uh, undergoing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God and the cursed death of the cross, and being buried and continuing under the power of death for a time. That was the humiliation of Christ. But then the exaltation of Christ is everything that happens from the resurrection to his session in glory at the right hand of the Father. That constitutes the exaltation of Christ. So the resurrection of Christ is the beginning, if you will, or the first part of the exaltation of Jesus. And I indicated this earlier, but this is very important. The resurrection is, among other things, it's not the only thing the resurrection signifies, but it's very clearly a sign from heaven, in other words, from God the Father, that Jesus' sacrifice of his life on our behalf was accepted by the Father. Uh, Our salvation, folks, is dependent upon that resurrection. If the resurrection didn't happen, and Paul tells us this in 1 Corinthians 15, we are not saved. We are still under the wrath of God, and we are heading to hell. It's only the resurrection that allows us to be sure that Jesus' sacrifice was accepted on our behalf, and we have been made whole and right with God, and the resurrection testifies to that. And along with the resurrection, um, uh, the, 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 that being the first part of the exaltation of Christ, uh, the exaltation of Christ culminates in the ascension uh, into heaven and the sitting down, the session it's called, at the right hand of the Father. Uh, and so this is, this is part of what... Uh, the, the honor that Jesus deserves because of what he did uh, and what he endured for the church. The honor, this is his honor. This is the glory that he deserves and, um, and he receives from all of heaven and one day uh, will receive from all of earth as well. But we, you see, even though um, all of earth does not recognize him and honor him as they will when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess, Uh, in the last day, we have already been transformed by the grace of God. And so we know enough to glorify and honor him. And so the, the resurrection and the ascension should remind us 
Jesus deserves my honor for me. He deserves that I live a life that glorifies and honors him. And I, it's the least I can do uh, for what he has done for me uh, in, in uh, reflecting his glory back to him. We can't really add to the glory of God, but we can reflect his glory back to him through our lives and the way we live them. Uh, and that is what he, of course, desires from us. Um, and of course, the fleshly veil that had once uh, veiled his glory when, during his time upon the earth, that was now entirely removed as he passes in to the heavens uh, back to the Father. Also, another reason why the ascension of Christ is so important is that it foreshadows our ascension into heaven as believers. You say, wait a minute, we're on earth. I'm, I'm here on earth. I'm not in heaven. Well, actually, you are in heaven if you're a Christian in some sense because of your union with Christ. Paul speaks about this over in Ephesians chapter 2, verse, verses, uh, four, well, verse 6, but I'll back up to verse 4. But God, Ephesians 2, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with him, excuse me, together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us, past tense, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So because of our spiritual union with Jesus, we are actually, in some sense, in a manner of speaking, in heaven, seated with Christ. We have been raised with Christ to newness of life, and we are even seated with Christ in his victory uh, through our spiritual union with him, even as we live out our our, the remainder of our days here upon the earth. And so the ascension of Jesus foreshadows our ascension to the heavenly places. Uh, and since we are united to him through a God-created, indissoluble bond, we are assured that uh, we will be with him forever because of our spiritual union with him. Jesus uh, speaks of this over in uh, his great high priestly prayer, prayer in John 17, verse 24, where he says this about uh, those who are his people. Uh, Father, I desire that they also, meaning believers, that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, in order that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me for thou didst love me before the foundation of the world. But notice that they would be with me where I am. Um, and through our union with him, that we are already participating in heaven's existence now and more fully uh, in the final day, and that is guaranteed to us because of the ascension of Christ that we have partaken of spiritually. Also, the spirit of the risen Christ, the Holy Spirit uh, of the risen Christ could not be poured out on the New Testament church until his ascension, Jesus' ascension, occurred. John speaks of this over in John 16. Actually, Jesus is speaking here uh, in verse 7 when he says in John 16, 7, But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper shall not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So, he needs to go in order for the Spirit to come in his fullness upon the New Testament church. And of course, uh, that's another 
incredible significance of the resurrection. We uh, have a, a participation in the Spirit that is, uh, that is uh, uh, greater than our Old Testament brethren did. Uh, the outpouring of the uh, would occur ten days hence from this day. It was going to be ten days later uh, from this point in time, but it was it was going to happen after Jesus raised ten days later, and it of course did happen. And it was essential that uh, Christ's spirit be poured out uh, uh, at Pentecost, so that His presence among the people of God might not be confined to one location. Jesus is wherever the Spirit is. And the Father is also wherever the Spirit is. And through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, Jesus can be with us uh, uh, wherever we are through uh, the Spirit. And also, the Spirit, Christ's Spirit had to be poured out so that we might be equipped with the power that we would need uh, and that the disciples would need and that we also need to be bold and effective witnesses for Christ in the world. You know, we've been given this command uh, you all are familiar with the command of uh, the Great Commission, go and make disciples uh, of all nations, Jesus said. Um, uh, that's re- those words are recorded over in Matthew's Gospel. Uh, Jesus, of course, never gives a command to us uh, to do anything that he does not first give us the resources with which to do that, fulfill that command. Uh, and he promises to equip us with power. Uh, Acts chapter 1, we read, uh, these were amongst his final words before he ascended. He said, but you should receive power, One eight. You should receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. By the way, this is important to note, Jesus is speaking there in Acts one eight. that verse I just read. He is speaking there not just to the apostles. Yes, the apostles were the ones that were actually physically present on that occasion. But he is clearly speaking to all believers uh, down through the ages. And that's evident, by the way, from the fact that the Holy Spirit was poured out on more believers than just the 11. And at Pentecost, 120 were in that room, not 11. And so clearly, the words that are spoken to the 11 here that are recorded in Acts 1.8 applied to them as representatives of, of all New Testament believers. So what that means is that Jesus is making this promise to you and to me. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. I shall receive power. We all shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon us. The Holy Spirit comes upon the believer now in the New Testament age, the moment he is born again. The moment he becomes a Christian, uh, Paul tells us this over in Romans chapter 8, verse 9, that the Spirit uh, has come upon us if we are Christians already. Uh, so it's not as dramatic as Pentecost was, uh, but it is nonetheless uh, a real infilling of the Spirit. And there is a direct relationship in the New Testament era between the Holy Spirit's infilling uh, of the believer and the boldness and the effectiveness of the person's ability to tell others about the risen Christ. Uh, we see this in Acts chapter 2, verses 41. I'll just read that briefly, and there's some other text here, but I won't take the time to read. But uh, one example uh, of this being the case is Acts chapter 2, verse 41, where we read... Um, yeah, actually, I'm going to do 4.8. 4.8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, and he was speaking here to the Sanhedrin, I remember uh, Peter who was uh, fled in, uh, in 
in fear uh, after Jesus was arrested. This man now, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to the uh, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, and then he went on and defied them, uh, knowing that they had uh, they were the religious authorities, uh, and uh, whom he was, had been previously scared of, and now is no longer scared to to speak the truth uh, boldly, uh, as he also did uh, uh, earlier uh, in Acts. So we too have this um, uh, this resource in the person and work of the Holy Spirit who dwells in us to witness for Him. Perhaps you're saying to yourself, um, "I don't have what it takes. I don't have what it takes to be to talk to somebody about Jesus. That's not my that's not my cup of tea." Well, most people wouldn't say that around here. Uh, but at any rate, uh, that's not for me. I'm just not that kind of person that does that kind of thing. That's a lie. That's a lie. You are that kind of person. All of you here, all of you that are watching me at home, you are that kind of person. The Spirit of Christ came upon you, as I already said, when you first became a Christian. You have all the boldness, all the power that you need in the Spirit um, and Jesus guarantees that in Acts 1.8, that you have that power, that ability to be a useful and an effective witness who glorifies uh, for him who glorifies him through your witness uh, to other people. And we are commanded to witness, to tell others Christ is risen. He has overcome the powers of death and hell, and he's the only Savior of sinners, and you need him. And we are all called upon to tell others when the Lord gives us opportunity to do that. The power to be an effective witness is there for you when you're afraid uh, of what your colleague might say if you breach broach the subject of the gospel during the lunch break. Uh, the power of the Holy Spirit is there for you to be an effective witness when you don't think you have anything to say that will make a difference in the heart of someone who you'd consider a hardened sinner, who you're trying to talk to or thinking about talking to. The power of the Spirit to help you witness is there when you feel like you're stumbling over your tongue, when you feel like you lack the charisma needed to persuade the person you're talking to because um, you just don't feel like uh, uh, you're too terribly impressive. Um, Jonathan Edwards, by the way, was not terribly impressive. Some of you know the story of Jonathan Edwards. His, his uh, great sermon Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, preached back in the 1830s, I believe it was, 40s. Anyway, early 40s, I believe. Uh, he, was, uh, he stood and read his sermon uh, and just held his sermon apparently like this and was just reading off the page. Not terribly impressive, and yet it's, it, um, it was one of the, the factors in bringing about the, great, the first great awakening, uh, the preaching of Jonathan Edwards in that particular sermon. Uh, in fact, God doesn't need a charismatic person to use for his glory. He needs faithful people who will serve him and who will do what he tells them to do, and that is to be witnesses, to look for opportunities and take those opportunities, and we need to do that. Also, the ascension, lastly, uh, we've talked about uh, that it uh, was, um, sorry, my paper's here, uh, it was a visible manifestation of Jesus' sonship, uh, it completed the process of Jesus' exaltation. Uh, it foreshadowed our ascension into heaven as believers, now and in the future. Uh, it uh, 
was necessary for the outpouring of the Spirit in the way that he was outpoured in the at Pentecost. And now finally, it was necessary in order that Jesus might prepare a place for you and me who are trusting in him in heaven. John chapter 14, 14 verses 1 and 2, Jesus speaks these words regarding this preparation. He says, In my Father's house are many dwelling places, If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. Heaven is being prepared by our Savior for us. But the us is only those who are believing in him, who are trusting in him alone, putting their complete faith and hope in him to make them right with God and to uh, bring them safely into God's presence. If you are not a Christian, if you're listening to me and you're not a Christian, and if you never end up putting your trust in Jesus as your Savior, the one who saves you, and as your King or Lord, the one whom you will serve, If you never do that, God is also preparing a place for you. Matthew speaks, Jesus in Matthew speaks of this over in Matthew chapter 25, verse 43, excuse me, 41, Matthew 5, 41, where we read Jesus speaking, Then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. And he doesn't say this, but he means also you, for you who are accursed as well, along with the devil and the angels. That place is being prepared. Hell is a horrific place. Uh, but everybody that doesn't have Jesus as their only hope of being forgiven by God and reconciled to God will go to hell and spend eternity uh, in that horrific place. This is why it is so urgent that you repent, if you have not done so, of your sinful rebellion against God. We're all born rebels against God. You're a rebel, I'm a rebel. We were all born that way and conceived that way, in fact. And it's only if we repent of our sins and and as we're doing that, trust in Jesus to save us from the wrath of God that we deserve. You need to do that before it is too late. And it will be too late when you take your last breath. You may be thinking to yourself, but I'll have to give so much up. You're darn right you will. Jesus said, but if anybody wishes to come after me, let him take up his cro- deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Yes, you have to deny yourself. As a disciple of Christ, a true follower of Christ, will deny himself over the course of his life. You are going to have to give things up. That's true. But if you do give up a life of uh, where you're in control of your life, where you're serving yourself, if you do uh, give that way up and turn to Christ and trust in Christ, you will get infinitely more back in return than you will ever lose. Jesus said, for whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but forfeit his soul? 
For what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? You need to bow the knee to Christ if you have not done so. The offer of God's forgiveness and love is yours for the taking. The ball is in your court. Are you going to ignore this offer of grace and mercy and forgiveness and be your own executioner? Or are you going to bow the knee to Jesus Cry out to him in mercy, uh, for mercy and trust him to save you from hell and bring you safely home to heaven. You need to make a choice if you haven't made that choice already. May God give you the grace to make the right one. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this passage that reminds us of the uh, crown jewel, if you, w- if you will, of your exaltation that you have, are now seated in glory in the place of highest honor and majesty at the right hand of the Father with all the uh, angels and the church triumphant praising your name. And we thank you that you are ruling now sovereignly over all of the world and you are in the process, Lord Jesus, as the messianic king of subduing all of your enemies to yourself either by way of conversion or destruction. We pray that if there's anybody that's listening to my voice, Lord, that has not yet bowed the knee to you willingly and said, Jesus, save me, would you please give such a one your mercy? And Lord, for the rest of us who are already have found your mercy, uh, we ask that you would help us, Lord, uh, to live in light of the fact that uh, you are our risen King. You have purchased our pardon You have ascended to your throne, and we are to serve you with great joy and great vigor and great love and great gratitude. Would you please help us to do that, Lord? Help us not to get caught up in the things of the world, the the things that the world wants to use to distract us. Help us to be enamored with you more and more, and please cause that to be the case this week. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.